It is good to see you. Thank you for coming out tonight. Thank you for faithfulness, consistency, which really is part of the theme that Apostle Paul is getting after in our passage tonight. Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We have come to verse 12. In the previous verses, uh, Paul describes how his desire to know Christ and become more like him is worth more than all else. To him, it wasn't even to be compared. And now as he continues, he, he talks more about that pursuit. So let's read the passage. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider what I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the up the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our Heavenly Father, we, we ask that you would cause your word to not only be clear to us, to ring true in our hearts and minds that what you have intended this to produce would take place in our hearts. Help each of us with what may be in the way of our thinking or acting on these truths. Help each of us where we are to move forward that we might be pleasing to you and we ask for this with thankfulness, for you are here and your heart is given to us. So we, we come in Jesus' name, amen. Passages like this present the Apostle Paul, really how we most imagine him. Uh, this driven, earnest, committed man. He, he speaks a couple times of, of pressing on, of straining forward. And that's how we think of the Apostle Paul, uh, and for good reason. Uh, his, he's very consistent in what we read from him as he describes himself and, and the way he is engaged with the Lord. We see it all and we see it as admirable. We, we see it as how life should be, but it just can feel perhaps unrealistic for us. The Apostle Paul lived that way. It would be great if I did, but somehow it, it seems unrealistic. It's too lofty for us. Or if we get down to it, we think, ah, it's just too hard. 
So tonight as we look again at truths that are not unique to this passage, what the scripture from beginning to end is pointing us to, that we would be people who live all in for God. That's really what he's driving at. Will we be wholehearted for God? Will we be great commandment people who love God with all that we are in all that we do? So as we look at this, uh, at what we already know should be the way we live. Uh, to be encouraged to know that this is, this was given just to regular people, simple people, flawed people, people like us in virtually every way, with not this expectation, look at that way up there, now you get after it. it it's given to Christians to actually have it take place in our lives. Now, we're going to work through the text in reverse order. Maybe that's just the way my mind works, a little bit off-bent, but uh, as I went through uh, what we have to cover, I thought it, it might serve our souls a little better to go in reverse order. So if you agree or not, that's what we're doing. So Paul gives us uh, what we're going to look at first, motivations for making this commitment. Motivations to, to honestly give ourselves to live all in for Christ. We see this in the last two verses, 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So there's three motivations I want to pull out from here. Uh, the first is that Jesus is waiting for us at the finish line. We await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where Paul goes to after he's telling us to, to press forward, to strive, to be earnest. And why would we do that? Because we await a savior. Jesus himself, the person of Jesus, all that we imagine and far beyond that, that glorious person, our king. He is there in the flesh glorified to meet us, to say well done, to greet us into his kingdom where he lives, where he wants us to be, where he is awaiting. That's where all of this leads. It's not a hamster wheel. It is step by step, day by day, closer to that moment when we see him. This is the culmination of the life we have, the life we've been given, that we've been called to. The culmination is the presence of Jesus. And that's the, the dominant theme in Revelation. I, we get to the end of the Bible and uh, that last book begins with this display of the glorified Jesus being seen. And then we're taken to the, the presence of heaven and the beings around him just unendingly crying out in glory. We see pictures of all of us gathered. And we see the reality of a world that hates him and kingdoms that fight against him and how they will all be crushed. 
And then the end is the new garden. And the tree of life. And our spending then forever with Jesus. This is the highest motivation for why we would be all in. Jesus himself, that we see him, we believe in him, we want him and we want to please him because despite all of the the flaws and failures we have is that we do love him. And, and that heartbeat, Paul wants that heartbeat just to keep growing bigger, growing in intensity. He is not only the most wondrous person that exists. The one waiting for you is also the the person who has sacrificed more for you than anyone ever could. Took all of your guilt. He became guilty with your shame. Paid for it with his death, with his blood, so that you would be able to be with him forever. It, it's important, I think, for us as we all work through what does it mean okay, day by day following God to be recommitting ourselves to be growing, to be thinking properly. In the center of this, I think it's very important that we keep framing all of this in, in the context that these steps we're taking, the decisions we're making, it's for a particular person. It's not just that I have to work at being godly more today. I have to, I have to be more mature. I, I have to do these things. It's the person of Jesus that we want to please. There's not a lot that I do around the house my reputation precedes me. <laughs> There's not a lot that I know how to do around the house, which may be planned or not, but uh, I do empty the dishwasher. And you're thinking, ooh, wow. Uh, I don't like emptying the dishwasher, and there's no reason why I shouldn't, because it only takes a few minutes. It's not a big deal, but I... I clean out the dishwasher just about every day, and just about every day I'm thinking, ah, I'm just too busy, I don't wanna do it. And the thought I pull in, why I keep doing it, is it's a way for Debbie, when she gets home and opens it and it's empty, it's a way of saying, I love you. So that's the only reason I emptied the dishwasher. It's a way to tell Debbie, I love you. That's what our decisions are. Of working at it again today. The worthiness of it is to let Jesus know we love him and that we're being, we're preparing ourselves. We're, we're working for the day when we actually see him. The second motivation he gives us also in verse 20 related to this is we belong where Christ is. He says, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But before that, he lets us know because our citizenship is in heaven. That's the kingdom we are citizens of. That's where we belong. I visit different parts of the world. My citizenship is here. 
It's the belonging place. Philippi was a Roman colony ruled by Roman law, and it was a point of civic pride for the people of that city that they were Roman citizens. That was important to them. Part of thinking maturely, as he he tells us to do in verse 15, mature thinking is recognizing that faithfulness is what we get to do, not what we have to do. Because we, we're, we're citizens. We belong there. We belong where Christ is. We belong in what Christ is doing. We belong in family connection. We belong in what does it mean to be a part of something together. We belong there. And every time a voice is is trying to tell you you do not belong in the presence of God, you do not belong to be asking him for anything, yes, you do. Nothing to do with worth, all to do with his value of us. We belong where Christ is. That's how he looks at it. That's how he speaks of it. So any lifestyle then, or any pursuit that we're in that, that takes up space that belongs to Christ, uh, that's wasted living, that's poor choices. We don't belong in anything, not And that's not just in bad places. We don't belong in half-heartedness. We don't belong in any casualness. We, We belong in this earnest, committed faithfulness. That's that's what we're made for. So to, to think that, well, there are some people that are really faithful, mature. Now, all of us belong there. All of us are meant to be there in this picture that Paul gives. So if we're living in a way that that kind of pushes Christ out some and we're living for things that are taking up room that belongs to him, it, it would be like moving out of your house to one of those cheap roadside motels that they talk about tearing down where drug dealers and prostitutes live. A place you wouldn't even want to stop in the parking lot. To give up room that belongs to Christ for something else is to to give our life to what is demeaning and lowly and less than it. It's to be irresponsible to what are our greatest responsibilities. You would never think of taking your family to a place ugly and dangerous and demeaning. And why would I bring my family here? Why would we live day by day in any way that is not given fully to Christ? It's a similar exchange. It's to bring what's dangerous and ill-fitting and not belonging into our life and our practice and our thinking. The motivations are that Christ is waiting, that we belong where Christ is, and thirdly, uh, that and we will be like Christ. Verse 21 who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Uh, We hear this many times. It's just too surreal.
to be perfectly obedient, to love the Father as Jesus loves the Father, to have our heart sharing the values, the commitment. It's so far from our experience and our efforts seem so feeble. Uh, last week, Ed gave the illustration of watching a championship football game with, with a, he spoke of a team to be left unnamed. And says, that, and if you're watching that game, and uh, it, if it's already taking place, you're watching a recording, it, it doesn't matter what the score is along the way. It doesn't matter what bad play happens or what turnovers. You, you know the score, and so you're just enjoying the game. You're not getting mad and leaving the room if you do things like that or turning it off. You're, you remain excited because you know our team, the Miami Dolphins, will win the championship. <laughs> There is nothing in doubt concerning our glorification. There's nothing in doubt concerning where we end up and the wholeness we will have and the relationship that we will enjoy with the Lord. There's nothing in doubt with what the Bible calls our glorification. It is sure that you will be totally faithful. How can that be? Because the triumphant Christ is the one who does it. He's the one who makes us completely faithful. The Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, is the one who glorifies us. He does this with the power that will cause, he says, all creation to bow before him. The power that enables him even to subject all things, it says, to himself. The power Christ has, that conquers everything before him. And when we are in Christ, that power conquers all, including Every stubbornness and every resistance and every failure we have, he conquers that too. He conquers our resistance. He conquers our sinful nature. So every situation that just seems too hard to follow him, that's, he conquers that. Every influence that pushes us away. He conquers that. Every sin that sticks in our crawl, he conquers it. Every weakness we have, every obstacle, Christ conquers all of it. It's the only way he can fulfill what he's promised to do. He conquers everything that keeps you from being completely faithful. And so, rather than be discouraged with the failures and struggles. We, we rightly are repentant whenever we need to be, but we're not meant to remain in discouragement. That only slows us down. We're meant to be energized and to be realizing who's awaiting us, where we belong, and that he will completely make us like Christ. And so we just keep heading at it. We just keep working at it. We keep pursuing what we know will happen. I just saw a video that said they took rats and they, they let them, put them in water to swim. And when it looked like they're about ready to get so tired that they would drown, which was 15 minutes, they rescued the rats and pulled them out and fed them and took care of them. 
Then they, they put them back in. I forget how much longer, maybe the next day. They put them back in water again and let them just keep swimming. And you think, well, how long the second time? 60 hours. 60 hours. They said, because the rats had in their mind, I'm going to be rescued. So they didn't give up. Someone's going to pull me out. I'm going to stay alive. I'm going to keep at this because I get rescued in the end. Rats, when they have hope, keep paddling beyond any reasonable length of time. I I think we could do something similar. These motivations, they're all sure. They're all unchangeable realities, and these are the foremost realities of our life. Lots of things are real. These are the most real. Why are they most real? Because they're eternal. It's how we end up. It's what lasts forever. These are the most real things about us. Paul then, in the center part of the passage, he brings up influences then that can move us one way or another as we are earnestly pursuing him, have these motivations in mind as we're moving through life. What are the influences around us? What are the effects they're having? Because none of us live in a vacuum. None of us live, it's just me in my walk with the Lord. We live in culture among people that have effect on us one way or another. And so he, he sets out those we shouldn't be influenced by and those that we should, verses 18 and 19, or 17 and through 19. Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have told you often and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, their glory, they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. We're not to be influenced by those who have no regard for Christ or his kingdom, those he describes as being enemies of the cross. Whether these are the obvious enemies, those in the world that just completely oppose the things of God, that considered a threat, does he include in that some of those, because he speaks of the tears, of the emotions, those who had been among us, who have left and have proven not really to be of us, not to be believers, but there's relationship, there's connection. Some of them may still speak of themselves as believing and knowing God. There are There are many out there that will use language and make claims. I'm reading a book now by a man raised in a a strong church, and he'll have all kinds of descriptions of what he thinks is true of him. In reality, he hates what's truly of God. He won't admit it, but that's what's true. And so there are these influences around us, and, and Paul pulls back the curtain so that we might see What is the ugliness in everyone who disregards the truth of Christ? No matter how nice they are, no matter how they may help us in some ways, the truth is they don't love God and they want nothing to do with love for God. Doesn't remind you, you know, the great and powerful Oz. 
Don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain. You know, be impressed. That's what the world wants us to think. Be impressed. And Paul says, impressed? There's nothing to envy here. There's nothing to cling to, nothing to emulate. Their end, he says, it's destruction. Just as those who didn't get on the ark, destruction is coming. Their God is their belly. They worship their desires. And what they think is their best. What they would lift up and say, look, this is what we do. He says, it's shame. Isn't that true of our world? They're exalting what they should be utterly ashamed of and not a shred of shame in them. We should be intimidated by. The church should retreat and let's be a little careful. Don't want to offend them. I know maybe, you know, they have a, you know, a voice that should be heard. Now, people should be heard. You know, the respect of listening so we can engage. Evil, evil has not earned the right to be heard. My dad, years ago, he was speaking in the context of religious liberalism. It starts with, uh, they just say, you don't have to agree. We just you know, want a place at the table. We just want our opinion to be heard. That's all. You should just be willing to listen to us. And all that continues. And once they gain power, then there's no other voice that can be heard or given. Because the intent is against God, always. So rather than being influenced in any measure, to be intimidated, to to pull back from those, he said, it's destruction and shame. That's all they have. Instead, be influenced by those in whom you can see there's a person that loves God. Paul speaks of himself, and he said those who walk with that example. Paul's not saying that these are people who always do everything right. Find the person that never fails, that never makes a mistake. He's not saying that that person doesn't exist. A lot of them think they do exist, but they don't. It's that we're we're following after people that we can see are on the trajectory of honestly loving God and pursuing and going that way. And at times they can get off track and at times they can do something boneheaded. Sometimes they can just flat on their face. But we see there's a person who loves God So let me be influenced by them. Biblical community is vital because it it keeps us connected to see and hear and be around people who are making decisions and talking and thinking in ways that have the truth of God in them. And we're not going to hear that anywhere else. We need to be engaged that way, hearing and seeing what they do and how they respond in ways that are reminding us. Yeah, that's that's what godliness does. It's not always what they're saying, speaking to us. We're just hearing and seeing them and Love for God comes out. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it says, God in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us 
spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ. To God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. That's one of the ways that the Bible describes you. The aroma of Christ. If you have a heart for him, there, there, there's something of Christ that as people around you, it will impact them. And that's, we want to be around people who are the aroma of Christ and the implications, and we can be that. And isn't that a wonderful way to live? That part of the impact you have just being around the people of your church, your family, your friends, is it helps them to love God more. Isn't that a reason to not be casual about the things of God, but to have some measure of, of energy and conversation about it? Which is why gospel conversations, talking about the things of God, talking about Christ, making sure that gets into our mouths and thoughts and is part of what we talk about. If a discouragement I've had about myself so often is, you know, at the end of the day, looking back and thinking how many times I didn't bring. It's not, though I, we have to say something that amazes people, just general, everyday conversation about the Lord Jesus. There's value in that and being around those who are like that, which helps us to be like that, which helps someone else to be like that. So there are influences around us. We need to think of them, be aware of them. So that we intentionally connect ourselves are looking to those that have an example worth following. If you, whether you're around someone who smokes a lot or someone who's wearing a lot of perfume, the next person's going to smell either one on you. So let it be that they can tell we're with Christ. That we love him. And finally, we examine how Paul describes his pursuit of Christ, where he starts out in this passage, verses 12 to 14. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. However, I this is what I do. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So some thoughts from what Paul conveys about his pursuit of Christ. The first, the rather obvious and basic point is he made it his goal. One thing I do, verse 13. And that's what we saw last week. That's, he's, he's saying and anything that would get in the way, anything other than that is just rubbish to me. This simple, obvious point, to pursue Christ wholeheartedly, that's his goal. Have we gotten just to there? Are we, can we say, okay, yes, that's true. I, I don't always get to the goal, but that is my goal. That's what I want. That's what I think about. It, have we even made it our goal? What's your goal for life? What do you want to get out of it? What are you looking at? Okay, this is, this is 
what's ahead. This is what I get. This is what I want. What is it? There, there are goals there. They are affecting your priorities and decisions. So what are those goals? What are the goals in your career, in your relationships? What are your goals just day by day, week by week? Every Monday morning, what's the goal this week? Is it just, I'm just, just get me to Friday. There's, there's no difference in that attitude with the world. It's, let me just get to, when it's about me, I can relax, not worry about anything. That's how we waste days. Because the days are just to get through. Now, I fully understand things to get past and things we don't enjoy, but it's, it's not a huge shift to change looking at routine that's not exciting to recognize the Spirit of God is a part of this. He's a part of every day. He's in it every moment. He has purposes. He can get things done. He can do what I don't see and don't realize what he does is worthwhile. And he's in me and he's with me. And I know he's called me and he wants me to follow him. And so in all this ordinariness, the aroma of Christ can be coming out. And changing that can remarkably change our attitude through the week and how we approach days. I remember when this, I've told this more than once of when that conviction hit me, when I was just in the middle of the week thinking, I just want to get to Friday, which is my day off. I just get done this. And immediately the Spirit of God just convicted me. That's the world. What you have to do today is something God's given. God has purposes. I, I, I work at trying to think the value of the day. Some days seem and look and feel more enriched, but they're all God's days. So each one deserves God-heartedness in how I approach the, the hourly, the daily, the weekly. Our upward call that he speaks of. I press on toward the goal for the upward call. That's a prominent biblical theme. That God came and called people out. We will see it repeatedly through the book of Genesis calling out Abraham, calling specific people and taking them to the place he has for it. And that continues. We are all called out people. God calling us, meaning by his supernatural power and commitment and decision, he reached out and plucked us out of hopelessness and death and ignorance and blindness. He called us out, plucked us out, and gave us citizenship and kingdom and his son and life. So Paul saying, I'm pressing toward that upward call. He is saying, God chose, pulled me out. God gave me life. God gave me himself and his kingdom. So I'm going to do something with this. This afternoon, as I was going over this point, uh, my mind went to a, a very graphic passage in Ezekiel 16 that's it's meant to help us capture how dramatic our being called out is. The Lord is, is describing his people 
Israel. And this is what he says. This is, guys, this is a picture of you, people of Israel. Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites, of pagan people who do not know God. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field for you were abhorred. And on the day you were born, when I passed by and I saw you wallowing in your blood, and I said to your blood, Live. And then he repeats it. I said to your blood, live. And I made you to flourish like a plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. That is the calling of God. Utter hopelessness, despair, wretchedness, disgust. And God placed his eye on us and he said, no, I, I choose that you live and I raise you up and cleansed you and adorned you and made you something beautiful. That is the call. And you will be with me as mine forever. By nothing you could have done or hoped for, nothing that your mind even would have known. And Paul, understanding all these things very well, that's why I press on. Can we not see what God has called us from and to? Is that not the prize? The prize is not all the things we're trying to gather. The prize is that the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, awaits for us. You are a chosen child of God, called by God to himself. That's what we should prize. So we have the responsibility to think that way, to acknowledge, to see it, to value it, to live that way. We have the responsibility to Set ourselves again each day. This is my God to speak to our souls of what he is like and what he has done. To thank him yet again today. To never allow a day where we're not thanking him. And though we may not keep it up the whole day, that first step is toward Jesus, for Jesus. There'll never be a second step if there's not the first. Paul's pursuit of Christ was he made it his goal. The one thing I do, secondly, he, he valued the future. Verse 13, forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead. Now, Valuing the future here is more than hoping in the future. Yes, we do that. We should. That's important. Valuing the future is, is more than hoping in the future. To, to value the future means we 
recognize verses 20 and 21, what the future is, and that, that's where the greatest value is. We're not just hoping things are gonna get better. It is that, there it is, there's the land, there's the king, there's the prize. That's what my heart yearns for. My glorification, it's all there, the value is there. If we are valuing the future, we're pursuing, we're pursuing what it means to live for it. We're making decisions based on that prize, that value. Not just that the current's gonna take us away and someday I hope it gets better. Not just hoping, valuing. That then, that future of such magnificence that then we are measuring life differently than the world, uh, different than anyone else, because our values are so different from everyone else. Our values like, pause, these things, they're all chasing, it's rubbish, it's absolute rubbish. Here, here, here it is, here's the prize. Make your decisions about that, about getting there. Your choices, it's about there. What you give up or lose, what you worry about, uh, what is there? And so you're willing to lose anything, not to diminish anything for him. And so all parts of our life, all our choices and attitudes are be shaped by the fact there's an awaiting king and there's a kingdom that's ours. And so what is the greatest weight upon you, the greatest burden, the biggest fear? What is that hardest of all things? God is calling for you to see whatever that is in the context of your future, of his kingdom, in the context of him, the king, in the context of you being perfect and glorified, the context of it all leads to him. It, whatever it means for this to be reshaped and changed in how it's affecting us compared to what is ahead. It's still here, but the impact of it has changed when our mind is filled with the future, the person, the kingdom. And part of this then is forgetting what lies behind. This probably doesn't mean sinful past. Well, that as well. Uh, what, what gets in the way? And, and where's Paul been talking in the context of this section? The forgetting what lies behind him is, is most likely either his past religious success and notoriety that he describes in verses five and six, all that he was. I'm forgetting that. that those accolades mean nothing anymore. It also could be his apostolic accomplishments, those, those true accomplishments which we admire and we thank God for, but he is, he's not allowing any of that to so fill him that he slows down or he's distracted or he's not thinking, pressing, pressing. It's forgetting whatever is gonna slow you down. He doesn't allow himself to settle into, I'm doing pretty good. Or comparatively good, as I look around me. Isn't that sometimes what those 
who would claim to be believers will say if you touch an area of their life that they don't want touched? Come on. How much do you think? God doesn't. There's all of this as though we're being unrealistic just to lay out what the Bible says, what God calls for. As if God calls for things without really caring about it. As if the voice of God is beneath the voice of our own desires. As if God is not serious about everything he has ever said. That's part of forgetting what lies behind. And what he does then beyond making it his goal, valuing the future, and, and he just presses into the moment. Verses 12 and 14. I press on to make it my own. I press on toward the goal of the upward the prize of the upward call. Pressing into the moment means right now. So today, what I'm doing, whatever I'm in, I'm, I'm pressing on now. It's not after this season, you know, it's just kind of busy now. I know I should be doing more for God. I just have to get through it. It's just crazy at work. It's crazy time with the family right now. Or, this is, I'm just so tired of all, we, all these things that Paul, Paul would have none of that. Now, today, press on. This is the day. God gave me breath today. I will press on today. There's no excuses. There's no another season once I get past it. It's, it's well, whatever today is, well, let's press on with what this is. Is this hard? Is it weary? Well, let's just press on in the weariness. Let's press on in what is hard. Let's press on with, I don't know what's going on. How about we just press into Jesus because we don't know the answers to this. How about rather than work up night after night with the news, how about we just press on with loving Christ more? Wouldn't that be wonderful? For Paul, it specifically meant when he says, I press on, I press on. It means when you're chained in a prison cell. It means when he's suffering. It means when life was unfair. It means when people were opposing him and belittling him and demeaning him. It meant all of that going on, I press on. I can't leave this room. So for okay, what does it mean to press on in this room? And if you're not sure, you ask God. The Spirit of God will tell you because he wants you to. So what does it mean to press on? You break your leg, you're, you're on a bed for a few days. You're, you, whatever the limitations, what does it mean to press on in whatever this is? Think about what reasons you have for not pressing into living more fully for Christ. Whatever the reasons are, then read verse 8. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Jesus, my Lord, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Uh, Paul knew this was a process. He said, not that I've already obtained it. That's how he begins. It's a process. It's not a position. Okay, I've reached faithfulness. It's not a plateau. Okay, I'm, I'm more faithful than most people. It's, it's a process. Paul was imperfect. He was struggling, even as he was committed, maturing, and earnest. 
So in the end, is this really realistic? To live like Paul did? Is it realistic? Well, what tells us it is, is verse 12, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. So we can pursue Christ wholeheartedly because that's the only way he pursues us. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, would you help us to have hearts freshly stirred, desiring, loving, seeing, being drawn to living fully for you. Not seeing that as restrictive or too hard or too much or limiting. To see it as all wonderful because it's all about our Lord Jesus. Help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.